Welcome everybody, Lee Henson Hasty here with uh, Leading Theologically. Um, I am the coordinator for theological education. Ah, that's not what I am. I'm the senior director of theological education funds development at the Presbyterian Foundation. That's a ministry of the Committee on Theological Education. And we are supporting Presbyterians supporting uh, that are preparing for pastoral ministry, primarily at Presbyterian seminaries like uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, where my guest today, if you don't know, Hannah, I hope you get to know Hannah very soon, uh, associate professor of Reform Theology. We met just a few weeks ago at the inauguration. She was on a panel uh, at the in the connection with the inauguration of their new president, Jonathan Walton. Hannah is uh, a systemic, uh, systematic theologian. Uh, she is from Heidelberg University in Germany, where she, where, uh, where they, I'm sorry, got uh, have their MDiv, uh, and also in theology and economics, which I'm actually really excited about. Um, we're going to post a bio of Hannah in the chat so you can get to know Hannah. And um, thanks for being here. Raised an ecumenical Lutheran, um, recognized as a Bart scholar. I think you have a leadership role in the Bart society, if I remember right, um, and an active member now in the Presbyterian Church USA. Thanks for being here, Hannah. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. I also really appreciate the, the moment at the beginning of like, wait, who am I and how many? <laughs> <laughs> it happens to me all the time. Oh, gosh. And um, where where am I today? What month is it? I don't know. Um, but it's good to be here. I've been looking so forward to this. Hannah is the author of the right off the hot presses of from Westminster John Knox Press. Uh, this book, After Method, Queer Grace, Conceptual Design, and the Possibility of Theology. That's our topic today. Um, I, may, I love the cover, by the way. I don't know. I know you're not responsible probably totally for that, but what a gift. And just the accolades. Um, best book on theological method in a generation, says Vincent Lloyd from Villanova. Um, not just a preface theology, it's a major theological event in itself, says Ted Smith, a Presbyterian who is at Candler. Um, I could go on and on. David Ferguson, Lisa Powell, Christine Helmer. It's it's amazing. This this is an important book. People will be talking already are starting to talk about, and we're going to talk about it today. But I have jumped ahead. I want to start first with a vocation question. Um, so everyone can get to know Hannah a little bit better. What is it, Hannah, that is making you come alive because, as Howard Thurman says, what the world needs are people who are coming alive. Mm, yeah, I love that question and I love that sensibility. Um, I really love working with words and working with people. And when these things connect, um, then a lot of things happen. Um, so, I mean, uh, I actually didn't intend to become an academic, but things that I have contemplated and that I aspire to become were. Um, an actor, so someone who works, you know, embodying words in, in particular kinds of way and, and performing them, and um, and a preacher. I really wanted to be a pastor, and that didn't happen. That's one of my, my big regret in life. But in some ways, I feel like um, not too late. It's not too late. <laughs> well, <laughs> teach preachers, teach preachers. Yes, um, <laughs> but like working in the classroom, working with students, seeing that light come on in their eyes when something connects, when a new idea forms, when they suddenly are making. Are like when I'm able to offer them resources, theological resources to now make sense of their existence or the work that they're doing in a church. Like these are the moments that I live for and that make me come alive. And I feel like that's also a kind of ministry. I, I understand my vocation as a kind of ministry in a sense. 
100%. Um, well, lights coming on, I will say uh, during this panel, which was centered around um, some of the work that many, Eric Barreto, I believe, uh, Heath Carter, and um, oh gosh, uh, there's one other person on the panel. Um, Nate Stuckey. Yeah, Nate Stuckey. And, um, and the Dean, I believe, right? Yes, so, all, the lights, Dean, yes. all around classes connected to the farminary. Um, you're teaching a class. You're, you were just telling me earlier, why don't you tell folks what you're teaching now? Because there got to be some lights coming on. Um, in yeah. This course. Yeah, sure. Two so, or three, but the one at the farminary. Yeah, this is a very special class. It's a very special place, the farminary, if you don't know it, uh, check it out. Um, um, so I teach a class that is called What is the Human Being? Um, and we teach it in a barn on a farm. We um, read texts that ask this question, right? That discuss the Imago Dei and um, incarnation and um, what it means to uh, be in covenant with God. And then we dig in the dirt and we connect to the more than human creation around us. And we, you know, press harder into our um, uh, place in that whole tissue of like a larger web of, of interconnected being, uh, which does not is not just reducible to God and the human being, right? And um, yeah, and that's been really fun and fruitful and generative. Gosh, I'm, you're making me think like Genesis one, two, right? Created from the dust, and the dust we shall return. I mean, and there you are digging in the dirt. Yeah, I mean that's amazing. That is amazing. Um, folks really do get to know the farminary, and uh, I, I can think you can already see why I invited Hannah to come today. Um, this this new book, um, this there have been you speak about mentors and people who have been really important. How how did the ideas start to frame around this book? How, what is the genesis? Let's th let's say genesis. What's the genesis mm. of this book? Um, well, in some ways, the genesis of this book, like my most important mentors for this book were literally my students, uh, which mm. I have to apologize if I said this already, because in some ways, the, the way this book is written is not really inviting for students to engage. It's, you know, it's more of a, it's, it's quite abstract in some ways, but it really came out of my struggles of this question of how do we teach theology as, mm -hmm. you know, I'm pressed by students who come from a diversity of backgrounds and have different um, contentions even with like what theology is and how it's framed historically and whether it has a space for them and whether they can think of themselves as as subjects in that enterprise or just as objects and sometimes victims right of these um historical discourses and um yeah so i've i've, I've been trying to grapple with that in uh redesigning our introductory course together with colleagues um so there's a part um, of me that try to um, and and then there's and then there's my own kind of disjunct biographies. Right. So I grew up in, in Latin America in kind of contexts that were broadly liberationist in terms of the li lived theology. Um, I was trained in Germany, which um, is, you know, in, in much more old school than many places in the, in the U.S. in the sense that, you know, what we, the understanding of rigor and theology is, is deeply uh, tied to the. 19th century ideals of systematic theology and 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 doctrine or then historicizing certain things um so these were pretty disjunct to me for a long time and then i started putting these together as if we if we're really uh committed and if we actually believe that we're talking about god and the world and that these things really exist um then that must be true regardless of which side we come at them from and then maybe there's space um for these different kind of approaches and or a different way to negotiate their tensions rather than 
uh, asking who's right and who's wrong and who has a place and who doesn't, right? Maybe there's a more capacious way to do this. And that's partially what I was trying to do. Well, it feels That feels like moving from sort of a two-dimensional, even three-dimensional toward even a fourth dimension or something of way of thinking theologically. Um, just, I mean, I've not, I've only gotten through about a third of the book, but it's sort of opening my mind that way. Um, you just spoke about Latin America and um, as formative and your students being formative and ger the German kind of educational system. Are there other mentoring communities, experiences or persons that have been particularly important in your journey and have shaped uh, the way uh, you live and think? And um, Yeah, hmm, uh, there, there are many. Yeah. <laughs> it, it starts with um, with family, right? I was born into a family that my, both my parents were pastors. Um, I have um, uh, and, and kind of grew up moving around the world in experiencing like this weird uh, worldwide ecumenical church as a as a strange and big home that is then you know in, in many of the individual places that we get into also very narrow and and difficult but also is this amazing uh, way of being connected to other people just because they're also part of the body of christ and then sometimes you have to and then somehow you just have to put up with one another and and that's actually wonderful and hard but also wonderful um i have uh, so one of the figures that has really impressed me is um my grand uh, auntie, so like my grandmother's sister, who uh, was a trained pharmacist and later became a teacher, later became a psychotherapist. And she worked relentlessly for others. Um, she was this, this tiny lady. She wasn't even five foot tall. Right. And she was a pious, very pious soul um, and um, would advocate for Kurdish refugees in court until she was 90 years old. And her wow. motto in life was was basically whoever the good Lord puts on my doorstep, this is my responsibility to love them. Um, um, like that was just this, this fierce commitment to people out of a deep love for God that she embodied and, and um, that probably like kept her alive, right? Uh, wow. when, when her body even was shutting down, uh, that really impressed me. Um, and then there's lots of uh, chosen family and community that I found in different places. And one that you've um, already mentioned and that was really, really formative for me was with working with grassroots organizations in Argentina, um, mm. where often it was not even explicitly religious, but there was a fierce militant spirituality deeply baked into the work that they were doing um, and kind of an embodiment of a capacious compassion and conviviality um, that then poured out into into action and into solidarity. Mm. Fierceness. That sounds like you uh, you live that out um, in Argentina. You, you got that from this great aunt. What is her name? What was her name? <laughs> Greta, Margarita. OK. Um, and uh, and you live it out today. This uh, I, I feel like this is a bold, fierce book. Um, and um, it, it's grounded. You're you you're you have a background in economics um, as well as in reform theology. Um, what can you and systematic theology? What do those when you put that all together <laughs> and uh, with your, this kind of fierceness? Um, it feels like it's something new about reform theology. This is not magisterial reformation mm. kind of theology. Right. Or is it? Um, what is, what is it that's going, that you're doing, do you think, or you're trying to do? 
Yeah, yeah, good question. So I mean, um, this, right, my um, my going into these different fields really came out of the same experience, uh, right? Um, so after high school, I, I spent some time in Argentina um, out of like an idealistic, youthful idea of, you know, an awareness that I was growing up very privileged and wanting to give something back. And I, um, because I already knew Spanish, I um, was inserted in like this wider web of grassroots organization um, researching their work and and writing up reports of, of that for an international ecumenical church body. And I obviously was like knocked back to my senses within seven minutes, realizing I'm, I'm not giving anyone anything here, right? I am taking along um, and giving, being given an education by people who have no institutional resources, very mm. little formal education and live in deep economic precarity, sometimes without housing, right? And are still like putting their life on the line in this work for others. And, and just realizing, right, they don't need me. They mm. don't need me there. Right. But they are giving me an education so that I can turn around. And I'm using that phrase very uh, deliberately, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a kind of conversion that they're um, pushing me towards so that I can go back and turn around and make a difference uh, kind of in, in this world that I come from. Um, there's a there's a there's a pietist Christoph Blumhardt who talks about our need to have two conversions, right? One to God. And then once we're converted to God, we also have to convert back to the world. And I felt like oh, and this idea I... that, you know, turning to God and turning to the world, these are not two different movements. They actually, um, you know, intensify one another. And, and this is kind of the, the experience I had there of um, of like the second conversion by turning to God, because I turned to God, because I wanted uh, kind of to to live a life of service to God, being turned back around to the world. And because of that, then being thrown back onto God. And so I found myself grappling with all these big questions that I wasn't able to solve. And that like when I then had to decide on what will I study, what career will I pick, I did something like a double major. Um, in theology and in ec economics, um, because part of my questions were coming out of this, yeah, this this kind of spiritual hunger, right? Another world is possible um, mm -hmm. that marked um, these movements, and the the you know that the another world is possible is from the, the slogan from the World Social Forum, um, and the commitment to kind of work for that from kind of a church grounded place, um, but then also the 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 real, real need to work for material transformation. And so kind of a need to engage with politics and history and economics. Right. And I felt like, yeah, I can read up on history, but I have no idea how economics functions, right? In Argentina, if um, you know anything about the history, it's like it's been bankrupted by international hedge funds several times. Mm. Um, it is very idealistic to go and denounce the barbarity or the, 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 the terrible of that and churches have taken leading roles of denouncing these injustices but often there's like uh, less um actual knowledge of how these structures work and, mm -hmm. and i kind of felt like i had to know more of the actual mechanisms that work to be able to grapple with that um i i failed i mean i did get the degree but i, I like i didn't i didn't I didn't find out how this works and how to make it better. Uh, <laughs> I fell off the ladder in theology. This is where I still am. I'm still interested in, you know, uh, in economics and the material uh, realities. Um, it's a, it's a theological term. Yeah. I mean, economics really is a th it's not just a financial term. It so. is. It is. <laughs> um, but so you also asked about right the um, how does that embody reformed theology? Um, is that it's not the magisterial kind? I mean. Um, 
you may gain and if you you know even look at the title and it says queer grace and whatever like you you may maybe appreciate that i'm not um like i'm not as interested in in defining who's in and who's out and how to draw the boundary and what is the essence or identity of what it means to be reformed but then again i think I mean, or, or they say, you know, they say in our in our, in the ordination vows for the Presbyterians for elder and everybody, it's the essential tenets of the Reformed faith. Right, but then actually, something that I appreciate about the Reformed tradition is that it's it's not about an essence or an identity, right? It's this okay. Reformed always reforming. There right. there is an anchor, right? It's, but this it, is it something is outside like of you, yourself. It's, it's not. Like, it's like you were talking about. There's a there's a kind of to God and back to the world kind of thing going. I think you were starting to talk about it there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So there's a there's a readiness, right, to to keep moving and to keep learning. Uh, what what reformed kind of as a specificity of a type of theology means to me is maybe just a just a kind of kinship, right? There's a historical current in Christianity, so there's a community of citation, mm -hmm. a community that keeps referring back to a particular set of figures and ideas, and then um, those shared uh, citation and referencing practices allow one to be in conversation with one another and to push one another and to learn with one another. But um, what I really appreciate about um, this particular loose kinship, right, is so, for example, is an appreciation of scripture in both testaments, a yes. commitment to be grounded in its witness time and again. Um, it's a trust in an assertion of God's sovereign grace, but that um, from there, right, being put back into the world and into ethics and into mm -hmm. politics rather than being withdrawn from it. And then this inherent pluriformity, right? Reformed identity is always about these local expressions and different times and places because, right, we know that the church is not an absolute and confessions are not absolute and doctrine is not absolute. There's rather this responsibility to witness anew and out of the experience of your own community, where you are, when, at the time that you're at, to the grace of God, and then therefore both the sense of particularity and of ecumenical openness. Gosh, that is me. I think we need to just print that script uh, and pass it around. Um, now, where you mentioned there's some figures. Bart is one that's, uh, Carl Bart has been important to you. You're engaged. Uh, what is going on in Bart studies today? And <laughs> inquiring minds want to know. We had to read a lot of Bart back in the day, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I come from Germany, and yeah. and there even I mean I think even more than in the in the U.S. scene, the after um, World War One, the the theological scene was very much dominated by Bart's theology, and and right. for good reasons, right? It was one of the few available. Um, systems of thought that were less complicit in, in national socialism and that had even a strong, um, had demonstrated a certain capacity to resist nationalist and militarist ideologies out of the theological commitments, right? Not despite them, right. out of them. Right. right. Um, and then the academy in which I grew up, like for a long time, it was really, it was the, like the confessional question was Bart or Boltmann. Right. <laughs> right. Like, and it was all about who is right and do you, who you do pledge allegiance to. You don't bite on those by those kind of um, bifurcated questions. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't, right? And and then later it was about who got Bart right? Is it the liberals or the anti-liberals? Or do we have to think of him as modern or pre-modern or post-modern? And then in the US, it was, I think, also in this last generation, all about rival interpretations of Bart. And, and also, again, right, I mean, and here much more materially, dogmatically about the doctrine of Trinity and election. And But again, the question, 
who gets him right, right? And um, <laughs> and and in, I think in both contexts, I mean, what I sense and people, especially in my generation, but also even you know before, like there's a certain fatigue with that. So I'm and and I'm. So when I started studying Bart, my mother, who is a pastor and who had to study theology, like sighed very deeply and said, <laughs> still studying Bart. Like, and there was a sense of loathing in her voice. Right. And I, I was like, oh, interesting. Like, where is this coming from? Right. right. She was. I bet she did not read Bart yeah. an outline. I bet she wrote in the longer. Right. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think there was in, in both these contexts and the German context and here, I think there are certain pockets of the academy where there's a there's a fatigue with that insistence on being right and getting it right. And the kind of air of, of superiority mm -hmm. and triumphalism that that um, engenders and 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 where Bart appears as a really quite obnoxious figure. I mean, let's face it, he was personally also quite obnoxious in these ways and, and, and many, many times. Right. Um, but what what I find really interesting is that people still keep returning to him, and I'm I too am returning to him all the time. And I wonder whether it's because he has such a remarkable capacity to work systematically out of very unsystematic commitments, yeah. um, or whether he has this um, attunement to the times and capacity to speak into them authoritatively mm -hmm. and unapologetically out of these core Christian commitments, right? Be precisely because he's doing theological theology and not political theology, that there's something really attractive about that. Um, and he has this readiness, right, to start over, beginning again from the beginning, uh, to reinvent not only himself, but but also the inherited doctrines and the language, use them in, in radically new um, ways, but also in ways that are able to connect to um, these inheritances. So I find that very impressive and versatile and and very generative. And so, what I'm seeing in in this con in this generation that is kind of up and coming, I see a lot of people who use Bart in a very different way, not as an authoritative figure, not with the question what is the right interpretation or did Bart get it right, um, but less partisan, less confrontational, more constructive, as like with Bart leveraging him for resources to address pressing concerns, and that sometimes they're making connection with disability theology or with um, liberation say. theology, mm -hmm. um, right? So it's not about um, like allegiance to his system or or repairing uh -huh. him in the ways that he was not able to address some of the concerns that we may have, um, but just um, like maybe even a much more relaxed um, thinking with him, thinking like looking where does he has, where does he have insight and and theological resources that can help us you know struggle with the things that we struggle with here and now um yeah well listen i hope everybody hears what i'm hearing here and can see is you mentioned about sort of at the core of of the reform of theology this one of the things that's all is there is grace and i think you seem to read grace live with grace this is a big concept in your book too, but it's a little different. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about queer grace um, and where that comes from and what, um, why that matters? Um, yeah. Do I have time to introduce my second interlocutor? Well, I mean, we're we're gonna well, <laughs> design. We should, we could be here for two hours longer. Um, do what you can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because these are you're bringing in. Um, not necessarily traditional theological resources here, I feel like. 
Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, right. I, in, in my book, I have Bart uh, on the one side as kind of a proponent of, of systematic theology or of reformed theology in the sense of a confessional and doctrinally grounded theology. And then on the other side, I have Marcella Altos Reed, who's a queer decolonial theologian from Argentina, writing downstream from feminist and, and liberation theological commitments, but also critiquing them because she says they have been too decent, um, <laughs> have remained too committed to making themselves legible and palpable to dominant theology. Um, they have started to do something like material theology, but the materiality that they then lift up, the poor and so forth, the marginalized or women, have been sanitized, like their material reality has been sanitized into neat and clean and, and, and palpable forms. And against these trends, right, she kind of asserts, well, we need to we need to become more indecent. We need to um, and and she plays obviously like with with sexual and, and she uses right materially uses uh, sexual stories. And so it's indecent also in the very literal sense, but also um, has to do with like an epistemic rupture. Right. Um, um, kind of getting through the glass ceiling of what counts as theology, being able to get to the to the to their actual lives, to to the reality of God and to the re reality of people. She talks about a theology that doesn't leave people alone when they're naked, basically, right? That doesn't compartmentalize parts of our lives that are um, that that yeah that don't enter into this um, into what what counts as neat and decent and so forth. Um, um, and um, so the idea of, of queer grace, and I use the term, um, uh, that the term is, was coined by Micah Cronin. Um, it talks about, on the one hand, this difficulty of being queer or being trans and the difficulty of theology as very similar kinds of difficulty, right? Okay. There's, a, there's an experience of an impossibility there, an impossibility of living in this world. Um, but also then the strange fact that we don't quite know how to make sense of, right? That mm -hmm. as Christians or as queer people, and sometimes both, we encounter grace. It is actually already there. We cannot deconstruct it. Uh, we don't have to produce it. We make these experiences that God is already there, that we do find um, joy and life and affirmation and relationships, sometimes in unexpected places, sometimes, right, in with and under the pain and rejection and um, adversity of the world. Um, and in places that don't fit quite neatly into the values and orders and rules, um, and sometimes not in established moralities and ethics, uh, but also not in the religious logics um, of goodness, um, but that still pour out life. And that can be really disorienting and reorienting and very disruptive and irritating, but it can also, we feel that it makes us come alive and no one can really explain that. But it's there. And that's what we call, I mean, theologically, that's what we call grace. And we understand that it comes from God. Um, and I think in this sense, um, also what has been talked traditionally about as grace, it has always been really queer in this disorienting and disruptive and renewing life-giving sense. And queer people have a profound knowledge, experiential knowledge of this kind of grace, I think. Not to say that others don't, many right. people do, right? Um, yeah. But um, this is kind of where I combine these experiences uh, to make these different grammars <laughs> legible to one another with understanding all the irony that attends that. I mean, I'm obviously in other ways not about legibility, but you know, <laughs> here we are. I love that. I love that. And um, so the book is not really uh, necessarily, it's, it, 
it's uh, it's not necessarily about a new kind of theological systematic. It's about it's about um, a new method to, and it sounds like so you're inviting people into. Uh, it's almost I feel like invited into a whole new room, a whole sort of new classroom uh, <laughs> where there's it's not the same. Um, we don't have I remember going, you know, in, 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 a, in an introductory kind of theological class where we kind of went through doctrines. We're not talking about going through doctrines this way. Right. It, help me out here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good. Very good. Um, so. I fully appreciate the irony that, I mean, in some ways I'm writing against method, right? I mean, this was yeah. the work title, working title of the book was against method. And then I'm writing a whole new book about method and <laughs> out of a fatigue with the divisions in the field over method and out of a um, frustration with theologians, not talking about God, but like being busy all the time about like, how can we talk about God? Um, um, but right. So my hunch and my wager is that if we examine the shape of these problems and the shape of this crisis, then we actually do get material theological insights because method is not about method. Right. The difficulty with method does not come from method. It comes from, uh, you know, like this weird incommensurability, incommensurability of God with us and our experiences and, and so forth. Um, so um, so I'm not trying to um, come up with a new method. Um, but I'm trying to um, come to a different appreciation, both to a critique and then a new appreciation of the work that method and can and cannot do works, okay. right? right. Um, so, and this comes out, right? I mean, so we've talked about uh, Barrett and Altos Reed, and I use them as proponents of like systematic and constructive theology, or we could say reformed and queer theology. Um, there's lots of ways that different subdivisions in the field can get cast. I'm not interested in how they should be carved up. Um, um, but sometimes there's a tendency to say, it's, for example, right, here are justice-seeking uh, theologies and here are truth-seeking theologies, and they start butting heads and, and even denouncing one another as bad types of theology. It becomes a fight, right? Yes, yes. it becomes a fight. And so uh, one thing that I'm doing is I'm using this, I'm, this kind of shared metaphor that um, both these terms, systematic and constructive inhabit, the, the conceptual, the design, the architectural metaphor, right? Systematicity. It's about being cohesive and coherent awesome. and logically consistent with the materials that are given by tradition. Otherwise, the whole cognitive structure collapses, right? And the constructive obviously favor, like has something, it has to edify. It has to construct literally, right? It's another building metaphor. Theology has a purpose and a use and it does something in the lives of people and and it has to somehow embody these effects or even bring them about of, of grace and justice. Um, and, and so rather than say, like, is it one or the other? If we think about design, a good design really has to take into account a whole multiplicity of criteria. It's not just one or the other. So in, in some sense, we have to do more. It's not, um, uh, we have to do more rigorous theology and take seriously all these different concerns. I talk about in the book, I call it epistemic promiscuity, right? Um, uh, it, not as a lack of commitment, but an insistence that like one singular commitment is not enough, is not good enough. Um, that doesn't wor always work out neatly. It, it will be messy, right? And it requires lots of conversation and discernment and iterations, trial and error, going back and forth, um, asking different people about their experience um, and so forth. Um, but so this is right. 
kind of theoretically the language I use of, of design and, and, and conceptual design um, to think about like, what if we t thought about our theologies more uh, like as buildings that we inhabit and who do these buildings allow access to? What ah, kind of movement and life okay. do they make possible? What do they prompt? Um, how do they allow us, right? Um, to live in the world. Um, and then if we think about it that's, that way, then um, we can learn a lot from disability and queer studies about, you know, those who are not quite at home, right. in the body, a place or the world. So what do you, they have to teach us about the ways our theologies are built? You're, um, you're, or a you, different, yeah. Let me interrupt you, Dick, and I know we're running, we're gonna go a little bit long, <laughs> we're just, this is, you know, everybody's mind is blown at this point. I do want to ask, and I suspect, um, many of our listeners would be interested. Why do you think this matters for people of faith and church leaders? I think you were starting to, you're starting for me uh, to think about, we do a lot of, with buildings, we put a lot, we build programs, we build buildings, we build all kinds of things um, and mission projects, you know, um, you're, but what you're talking about here started maybe it helps us the church maybe think and leaders think differently about what they're doing. So why do you think this matters kind of on that practical level? I realize this is not your field, but, but I know that you no, no, I, and, because you 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 are care you care about theology that matters on the ground. So I yeah, know yeah. Well, um, uh, so um, there's a there's a person, Kevin Garcia, who has a book and it's titled Bad Theology Kills. Right? <laughs> um, um, I highlighted that in the book. <laughs> what it is very difficult to try and think what good theology might look like. But I feel like that's a very good rule of thumb. Like if it kills, then it's probably bad theology. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because it's it's not. And I it's not about getting it right. Mm. Right. This is not this is it's uh, the message the truth that we come from and that we try to communicate is not an, a propositional set of principles. It's not, you know, mm, descriptions of the way things are. It is something that we affirm as and confess as fundamentally good news, as life-giving, and like even, you know, bringing creation into being. It's that powerful. It's that good as uh, redeeming us and reconciling us with one another and, and pouring out life, um, overflowing with grace. If that is the case, like the way that we express these truths should also be life-giving should also, you know, um, have these effects mm -hmm. that pr prompted us in the first place to talk about this. Mm. Um, so, right, I mean, there's a place in Hebrew that says, in, in the letter or epistle to the Hebrews that says, um, the word of God is a, is a two-sided uh, sword, right? Um, there are passages in the Bible that talk about swords being turned to plowshares and sometimes the other way around. Mm. Um so, right, what if just, I mean, theology is a human practice. We, you know, do things with words. Um, they do things in the world. Um, and what if we took into account that work that our theological concepts and ideas did as part of their truth value, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, the one metaphor that I used was theology as spaces that we inhabit. We can also think of concepts as designed objects that we use, right? This is a blade. The doctrine of election can be used like a sword to cut people down. It can be 
Can it also be used as a surgical document, maybe, uh, you know, uh, instrument? Can it be used um, to plow the ground? What is the use that this uh, theology is put? And what can we, and now I'm talking for the, like, the guild uh, theologians, those who are busy redesigning these concepts, those who don't come up with them in the first place, right? People in the church yeah. do. But like, as we try to refine the way that they work um, and how they can be used, if we dedicate more thought to that, right, the affordances they have, the way, the patterns of use and and value that they produce when once they hit the ground and once they encounter people in their in their lives, um, what would happen then? That's kind of the the thing I'm interested in. Yeah, we got a great. We've had some. I want to thank uh, Seth and Ashley and Phil and others who've joined us today. We had a great question from Seth. We don't have time probably to answer it, but I want to point it out to you, somebody else working in a related field on a queer and trans process theology um, and, and the inherent relatedness of those. So I'm going to encourage y'all to get to know each other and follow up. because yes. can, can, can you send my email address around or yeah. Well, uh, I definitely all the bio. If you go to the bio, it has okay. your email. Please so reach out. I welcome all your questions. I'm, <laughs> as you can see, I come alive <laughs> in talking about my ideas and I want yes. to hear yours and We're, yes. I'd love for you to bless and send us in a moment and, um, and gosh, wish we just had more time. Um, but, uh, and folks, in two weeks, we'll have uh, my colleague, the Reverend Dr. David Lowling. He's uh, works with me at the Presbyterian Foundation, uh, Director of Church Financial Literacy. And uh, I, I believe he would sing sing some similar um, things that you would say today, and including God provides enough um, is what he would like to talk about and uh, from the financial side. And then Shannon Kirshner, who's actually a board member at Princeton. Uh, pastor at Central Presbyterian in Atlanta will be with us to talk about ministry transitions. She's recently had one herself, so that I think that will be a lot of fun to close out our year. But uh, I just want to say, Hannah, um, clearly God knew what God was doing when God created you. Um, what a gift. And the experiences, the way you have woken up... Um, and come alive in so many ways in your family and in, in your your um, academic work and your work on the ground alongside others. Um, you're someone who I feel like is always alongside others, not doing this alone. And I'm just so grateful for you and for today, but but what you've done and what you continue to do and what God knows you will do. And um, uh, may God continue to bless and keep you and show you the way. Um, what a gift for the academy, but also for the church and uh, and for the world. It's transformative, literally transformative. So thanks for today. I hope you will bless and send us. And if there's anything else you want to say, you can say whatever you would like. <laughs> well, thank you so much also for these uh, words of affirmation and blessing. Uh, so I don't know if I have anything left to do, but uh, um uh, just to say to everyone else uh, after receiving this from you, thank you so much. May you become what you have received, God's abundant blessing. Amen. Amen and amen. Friends, we look forward to seeing you again soon. Stay safe. Stay safe.